North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. Tonight, an extravaganza. Kim Jong-un pulling out the stops for his country's 70th anniversary. One thing not on display, North Korea's most advanced missiles. President Trump taking notice. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. The president tweeting this, quote, This is a big and very positive statement from North Korea. Thank you to Chairman Kim. We will both prove everyone wrong. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. CSIS's Victor Cha, Mike Green, and Sumi Terry. In this episode of The Impossible State, I, Victor Cha, fill in for host H. Andrew Schwartz as we welcome a special guest, Dave Kang. David teaches international relations and business at the University of Southern California and is director of the Korean Studies Institute there. He and I co-wrote a book called Nuclear North Korea, a debate on engagement strategies, originally in 2003, which attempts to offer sober analysis of the North Korean regime. A new edition, which offers updated insights, will be released on September 11, and David joins us in the studio to discuss the book and more. Dave, today is uh, the day that the second edition, the revised edition of Nuclear North Korea comes out that you and I wrote together. Um, Maybe you can explain to our listeners how we came about doing this book in the first place. The title of it is Nuclear North Korea, a debate on engagement strategies. Boy, that was a long time ago, man. (laughs) Uh, You know, you and I had been sort of debating each other in academic journals, uh, seeing each other at conferences. And then I think... You and I had op-eds in the New York Times in like early 2002. like During the nuclear crisis. Yeah, during the crisis, like within a week of each other taking different stances. Uh, I was more for engagement. You were more for containment. And uh, you called me up and said, why don't we make a book out of this? Because nobody knows anything about North Korea. And so even if we give one side, uh, people never really know. We can give both sides and then say where we agree and disagree. And I actually thought no one would publish it. <laughs> I was very skeptical. Uh, but uh, it turned out to be a, a wonderful book. In fact, one of the most enjoyable projects I've ever done because it really laid stuff out. And people around the country, when we went around and did talks, it was amazing how many people were genuinely interested uh, in learning more I mean, there weren't, you know, people weren't just simply ideologues. They really wanted to know and, and, and think about the issues deeply. So it was, it was just wonderful. Yeah, I remember when we did the tour, when the book, for, I think we went to like five or six cities, More. like New York, D.C., Boston, Boston Seattle, San Francisco, Seattle. Oh, actually, we went San to a lot Diego. of places. San Diego, yeah. We yeah, went we all actually around. went all, yeah. all around. And um, the people that came out for the events and everything, this, I mean, this wasn't, this was a hot burner issue, but it wasn't as hot burner as it is today. Uh, and yet there was still a great deal of interest and a very vigorous debate. Also in the classrooms, we found that yeah. a lot of people were using this book for uh, as a teaching tool. Yeah. Right? And so in this edition, we have uh, a new chapter that was written largely by you, because <laughs> I was sort of in, preoccupied at the time with other things. Uh, and then a forward written by our good friend, Steph Haggard, who is a political economist at U- University of California, San Diego, and one of the senior figures in the Korean studies field. And basically, in the book, like we take different positions. I'm more for a tougher policy on North Korea. You're, more, you're for more of an um, engagement-oriented policy. But in the end, our conclusions were not that different, right? Yeah. I mean, what was interesting the first time we wrote it was 
we both agreed that even if you engaged or contained, there were, there were uh, a number of places in which U.S. policy particularly was the same. This time it was interesting because even though we can uh, talk about whether to be harsher or uh, more and get, you know, pull them out, draw them out or, or more containment, uh, we both agreed that there were limits on how much pressure we wanted to go and starting a war was not going to be uh, probably productive. Yeah. What were you thinking about in 2017 and then as we moved into the Olympics in 2018 uh, uh, to where we are today? Yeah. You know, I mean, one of the one of the interesting things is like, what what would you change? Like, people always ask me about this book. Like, well, you know, who won? Would you change what you say now, et cetera? You know, 10, 15 years later, or even last year compared to when I wrote the chapter, right? You know, the fundamental thing that I've I've stayed with is that everything I know about North Korea is that pressure is not going to get them to change, and that we have made some progress when we have engaged them. And so, like, you know, 2017, talking about uh, ways to force North Korea to come back to the table, I thought were counterproductive. I think right now the steps uh, that have been taken by the South Korean government and the U.S. government to engage and talk to North Korea has made a situation that's a lot less tense. And to my mind, we should be continuing that path instead of saying we need it all at once. Um, But that's where the debate is right now. Yeah. And what were you thinking when you saw this summit meeting between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un? What were you what was your assessment of that? I mean, do you feel like we've gotten to where we wanted to uh, three months after that meeting? Or do you feel like because sometimes I feel like we're seeing a lot of the same thing. I mean, there was a very important meeting, unprecedented meeting between the two leaders. But I feel like when we look at the situation today, we're seeing many of the sort of problems that we saw in the past. Uh, Yeah. In part, we're seeing many of the problems you saw in the past because the issues haven't changed. The thing that I would really like to see from the United States is what we're going to offer North Korea. And I'm not sure that we really, on the American side, understand how clearly North Korea has said we're willing to denuclearize if the U.S. meets us halfway. And I think we've all focused on the first part of that clause, which is, they said they would denuclearize. How come they're not just you know, handing over all the nukes? Um, and it's always been under certain conditions in which the United States meets them halfway. There may have been something that the Trump administration has offered privately or behind the scenes, but there's nothing I've heard about how, what the next step for that would be on the American side. Um, and that's what I really think we need to focus on more, because I think right now we're sort of stuck. Some people might take the argument that what North Korea has done thus far, decommissioning the nuclear test site and decommissioning the uh, missile rocket engine test facility. Moratorium on tests. Moratorium on testing. But some people might look at that and say, you know, those are confidence building measures. They're not the core. They're, They're confidence building measures that are requisite for the core negotiation on denuclearization, right? Some people might argue that. What do you think? I mean, do you see those as actual denuclearization steps or do you see them more as confidence-building measures? I mean, it's rhetorical, but, you know. I mean, in a way, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, in a way, it's sort of cement because they're all steps, they're all paths on the road, right, or whatever steps on the road. Um, the The way that I would put it is, if we had been sitting here a year ago, in 2017 in September, and if I had said to you, eh, in about six months, North Korea will have a explicit voluntary moratorium on tests, explicitly offered to need denuclearize under certain conditions, blah, 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 you know, taken some steps to symbolic or not taken some steps to uh, change their nuclear test site. Mm. 
I think people would have been really skeptical. I yeah. think people would have said, there's no way they're going to do that. It's like, Dave, what are you smoking? Yeah, right. right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so the fact that we're here today, I think, is a good step, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, these are all steps that a year ago would have been almost unthinkable. And what's interesting about that is most of those steps were driven by the North Korean side. You know, there's, there's an argument that, well, maximum pressure brought North Korea to the table. What I think about that is... Two things. One, I'm, uh, there's, the, the evidence is mixed to me about what's, what the impact on the North Korean economy is. You know, there's, there's uh, a lot of stuff coming out about how prices haven't surged, which means there aren't as many uh, shortages, et cetera. Um, so maybe, maybe not. But also, if it's maximum pressure and if nothing's really changed since then, North Korea should be even more eager today. But clearly, they made a couple steps and then they said, OK, well, what, what, where's the response to the United States? And I think that's where we are right now. Mm. And to my mind, I think what's going to be interesting is going to be this, this moon summit because he has to walk this knife edge between United States and North Korea. Uh, but can they find a way to keep the ball moving forward if the United States is not really uh, meeting halfway yet? Right? Will North Korea take another step through South Korea? I don't know. I mean, so first of all, I agree. Like this time last year, I thought we were going to war. Yeah. Right? I mean, I thought that's where we were headed. And so to be where we are today definitely is better than when we, where we were at this time last year. But let's sort of roll forward. Like this summit's going to happen, what, next week? Couple, yeah, right? next week. Yeah. The end of next week or so. Going forward, if Kim and Moon meet and they declare some sort of peace of some sort, is that going to cause a split between us uh, and the South Koreans? Because yeah. right now, at least it appears as though the Trump administration is not really interested in any sort of peace declaration you know, whether it's in Pyongyang between the North and South Korean leaders or whether it's in New York at yeah. the end of this month at UN uh, General Assembly. So yeah. do you think that's going to cause a split in the, in the relationship? Like you said, how does Moon balance these yeah. two things? No, you know, I think the, the, the problem for South Korea is that they are stuck, right? Like there's a lot of belief in Washington that South Korea should harmonize with the U.S. first and within those constraints, think about how to deal with North Korea. I mean, I get it, right? I mean, that's, that's important. And I think there's a lot of people in South Korea who want to have that happen. You know, at the same time, there's a desire to continue to move the ball forward somehow. Um, you know, and if, if I'm Moon, what I've probably tried to do is think of things that can work within a larger U.S. structure, but that might continue to keep some small steps towards detente moving forward, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and it can be even small things like family reunions and, and talk about, you know, this, that and the other thing type of technical cooperation or humanitarian aid as you try and get better policy clarity on the United States side. Right. I mean, I think that's what he's going to try and do. I mean, there's talk about some grand declaration, but, um, you know, to really go down that path is to really be risking a U.S. alliance or a North Korean alliance. Yeah. That's yeah. really a tough. I mean, it reminds me of 10 years ago when you had the last progressive government and people were writing, I mean, people who were real friends of the alliance were writing op-eds addressed to Seoul, you know, make your choice, yeah. right? Pick your ally. Is it North Korea or is it the United States? And, um, I, you know, I think this government in Seoul has the same sort of vigor and ideological commitment to engagement with North Korea like the last progressive government did. Um, and on top of that, they have, from their point of view, and it's not just their point of view, objectively, have a lot more 
to say in terms of the success of their policy, right? I mean, that they did move things back from the brink of war. They did get them to come to the Olympics, right? They've got all the communication channels open. They went up and opened this liaison office at Kaesong, family reunions. They've got a bunch of things. But sooner or later, the North Koreans are going to want more than these token gestures, right? They're going to want either more money, right, or goods from the North, from the South Koreans, or they're going to want sanctions lifting. And I, I just don't know how the Moon government's going to handle that, because that's really where the rubber hits the road, right, yeah. in terms yeah. of the United States saying, you know, I, I think the United States is going to say no to any sanctions lifting. And, you know, Kim Jong-un is going to be asking Moon at this meeting, you got to lift sanctions. Yeah, what's the right? deal? Yeah, yeah. And, and I've done all this stuff yeah. already, you should lift sanctions. Yeah. You know, the other thing I think is that one of the reasons I also think that pressure was not one of the real reasons that North Korea took this path is I see at least a two-year process. I mean, I see this as being a very, very clear long-term strategy, which is uh, if you go back to January 1, 2017, Kim Jong-un said, this is the year that we will complete our long-awaited task of Mm. you know, nuke and missile. I mean, very clearly said it. Mm. And all last year in 2017, they tested, you know, what, 60 times or something, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. No matter what we did, we went berserk, right? You know, threats and sanctions and blah, 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 right? Offers, informal offers to meet. Mm. North Korea is not interested. January 2018, he said, we've done it. Now let's talk. Which means if that was really a strategy, they were thinking about it back before 2017, like 2016 or so. Right? They thought about it and they probably said, We've done the slow motion nuclearization for a long time and it hasn't gotten us anywhere. Why don't we march up the hill? We know it's going to be, we're going to get a lot of pressure. Mm. And from a position of strength, then we'll offer to negotiate and march back down the hill. And they're up there right now and they've taken a step or two down and they're going to wait to see what happens. Right? I mean, in a way, North Korea is in a pretty good position to either offer to go back or to continue to move forward. And they're going to wait to see what happens, right? So I think we're in a we're in a different position than we were just because they've gone farther down the nuclear path. And before it was stop me before I do it, and now it's like can we get it back from that? Do, do you think, think we can actually ever get it back from them? No. I mean, they're, they're <laughs> this is the thing, right? There is no. We all know there's no CVID, right? They could get rid of everything. They could they could summarily exile. Let's be nice, not kill. Right? Exile every single nuclear scientist they've got. And they could always start over. Of course they could, right? Yeah. We know that. There's no way for us to ever completely, you know, forever denuclearize North Korea. And given how much we're suspicious of them, even if they did all the normal stuff, gave us all the nukes, we'd always think they've hidden some and they're going to start again. And there's a secret, you know, there's just, I don't think there's any way we're going to. Let me put it this way. The solution is not a technical one where we somehow measure the number, count the number of nukes and blah, blah, blah. It's got to be a political solution to this tension. That's the only way that it will really get solved. So does that mean accepting them as a nuclear weapon state? Or, or, or that they, we, and them, meaning you know South Korea, U.S., we, broad we, the royal we, right? Uh, and North Korea find a way in which they are actually able to say, okay, we really have resolved the war. We really are willing to open up in ways that might be more, uh, you know, a China-Taiwan thing where there's still two clearly different countries, but there's a lot of interaction going back and forth, right? It's not, it's a stable equilibrium that's that's below where we are now, where, where now uh, the equilibrium is kept through basically military deterrence. Is there a way to move that down to where the equilibrium between South North Korea and the United States is really some some type of lower level political relationship? 
Eye rolls don't work on podcasts, just so you know. <laughs> so then you actually support Donald Trump's policies, right? You actually you in, actually think they like, you know, in terms of meeting with North Korea. Yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. right? I was a big fan of the summit. Absolutely, right? I mean, the only way I think that we're going to get a relationship, a political relationship with North Korea is going down that path. Sure, it might have been nice to have the typical way, which is where, you know, the that top guys are at the end of a long political process. Right. But that's not written in stone, right? And he clearly sort of jump jump started it. And I think if you do think about it, like what was the process? It was dramatic decisions by Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump and Moon, right? It was really these top leaders making decisions about what they were going to do uh, that set the stage for, for where we are today. Do you think this, you know, they did their big military parade September 9th, 70th anniversary of the founding of the state, you know, as every press report um, noted, they didn't roll out the ICBMs, the Hwasong 15s, the Musadans. And then Donald Trump tweeted, thank you so much. You're inter- I mean, do you think that's real? Do you think that, or is the media just make, is that, or is that really, are they really signaling each other that way? I mean, like well, to use, me, like to I use know, IR know, theory, right? are these, Again, are these costly <laughs> signals that they're sending? Right? Yeah, yeah, cheap talk right? or costly signals that Again, they're sending each other. Do eye rolls work on podcasts? Yeah. All right. <laughs> so a couple of things about the parade. First of all, I'm not sure I'd call it a military parade, right? Because like it's a two-hour parade every year. And like the April one, right? We, we call them military parades because that's what we focus on. But all of these parades, well over half of it has nothing to do. It's like, it's like, you know, July 4th, right? It's like, you know, bans and economic floats, you know, these floats about the economy and, you know. Rose Bowl. Yeah, no, it is. Exactly. Right. I mean, and some of it is military. Uh, We call it a military parade because that's what we're focused on. Um, and in a way, I think that misses what they're focused on, which is this is about the whole country and it's a big celebration. So for us to only focus on that side meant even in the April one, we missed that most of it was about economic development. There's a lot of other priorities that government has. That being said, as we talk about the military, I think it's really interesting how obsessed we are with what they show on this thing, right? Uh, well, you know, here's the thing. If they had shown missiles, then we would all say, aha, they haven't changed their stance. Now that they haven't, a lot of people are saying, that means nothing at all. <laughs> right? like, I think that there's, there's a little bit of communicating there, but I think it's much more about their own, what they're telling their own people as much as what they're telling us, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think, I think we often forget that they're not only signaling the United States. I thought they were actually signaling China. So it would have been terribly embarrassing if, For the, Xi, yeah, yeah, the, if Xi Jinping sent his number three yes, guy the there. Top envoy. Right. Yeah. It's standing right next to Kim and yeah, then they roll these the Musadans face. and yeah. Hwasong's fifteens around. Yeah. That would have been a real embarrassment. Yeah. I mean, so that's I mean, so I feel like they do this thing, the media makes a big deal out of yeah. it, say it was signaling the United States. Trump's congratulating him for doing that. And all he's doing is trying to you know, he's trying to recultivate his relationship with China, right? Whether they do or they do roll out those nukes, they still got them. Right. I mean, you know, come on. That's the whole point. Right. It's not like this is a signal about anything other than uh, the atmospherics and the real way to get them to either get rid of some or whatever, you know, to walk back is going to take a lot more than than just us waiting. Right. I mean, so I I think all this stuff about what they did at the parade is really overblown. Yeah. But they clearly had meaning for Trump. Right. I mean, he he did a double tweet on it. It It was was a double tweet. It wasn't even a single tweet. And that got a lot of other people annoyed as well. But like what I would like and one thing I like to give to give a shout out to what you guys are doing is a lot more evidence based stuff, you know, like what you guys do with impossible state and, you know, all this stuff on CSIS. Right. Because 
if you just follow what happened yesterday, man, you can end up chasing your tail, as we all know, especially on North Korea. Mm -hmm. And we all listen to the same three people and we all, you know, gossip about the same three issues. And it'd be a lot nicer to have evidence uh, and not simply debate with tiny little twist here, you know, tiny little change mm -hmm. there. Is this is this significant or not? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fair. I think that's that's true. They, part because there's so little to go on, yeah. and it's such a hot topic. I mean, Trump made it a hot topic from the for his first year in office that um, people go on the latest the latest yeah. news yes, or the do. latest latest, you know, latest twist. Let me ask you about the longer term, and and this is also a way to plug your other book. Um, <laughs> So, Makes a so, great Christmas gift. <laughs> yeah. So suppose we actually get to this point where this strategy, if you will, by Trump succeeds. You know, there's a good relationship. There's a political normalization. Um, there's some conventional arms reduction, some tension reduction, and a peace agreement of some sort. But like you said, they still have the missiles. They still have the weapons. And even if they have fewer they still have the knowledge. There's mm -hmm. no way you yeah. can, you know, in many ways they could probably, if they had to start over, build better. Quicker. Quicker. Sure. And, and new missiles, you know, better infrastructure, better everything, right? What does that mean for the rest of the region? I mean, you mm -hmm. wrote a book last year that was about how, contrary to what we think, right, there's not a lot of arms racing going on in Asia. But the Japanese are not going to be comfortable, for example, with a North Korea that says, oh, we're all good now. There's peace on the <laughs> peninsula. And don't mind our nuclear weapons in the closet. We've only got a couple. You've only got a couple, yeah. like a warehouse full of them, yeah. right? So, I yeah. mean, it's hard to speculate. How would you speculate that's going to affect yeah. the broader uh, the broader question, military spending and arms racing in yeah. Asia? No, I think that is a, a, a really good question. So, I, you know, I have two things that I say about North Korea in general. And the first one is, if we don't start a war with them, they're not going to attack us first. I am absolutely convinced that deterrence works. They started a war in 1950 for sure. That was under different conditions when the U.S. had clearly signaled we weren't going to defend them. And then we changed our mind and we'd pulled our troops out. But, you know, it's totally different. I mean, that was 65, 68 years ago, right? Uh, since then, the South is now much stronger and bigger. You know, the U.S. is there, et cetera. So, I mean, everything I know about IR theory and about East Asia is that North Korea is deterred and they're not going to start a war unless we start one first. That's true. I mean, I think, so in 1950, we clearly sent signals that said we weren't interested. And so they acted. Um, and they haven't acted since then because of the U.S. ROK lines and force capabilities in the region. But one could also argue that if you look over time at North Korean behavior, like those periods in history where they felt they had a military advantage of some sort, like conventional 60s, military advantage in the yeah. 60s, they were actually much more aggressive yeah. than they are today. Yes. So, so there's yeah. that argument, right? Yeah. That that they may be deterred, but if they that they're deterred largely because they feel like the balance of capabilities is not in, to their advantage. But when they perceive that there is an advantage, they are more aggressive. Sure. Yeah. Right. But there's two things. Like so. So the '60s, I think, are interesting because there were two things that were going on there. The first one was obviously the Vietnam War. Right. And what. Kim was clearly trying to do with South Korea was the same kind of a thing, an infiltration strategy to try and knock off, right? The second difference, and I think this is a huge difference, is that uh, no matter what we think about Park Chung-hee, that was an authoritarian dictatorship that a lot of people didn't like. And so it was possible to sort of say, and Chun Doo-hwan as well, right, the Rangoon bombing, uh, a lot of the terrorism that North Korea engaged in was aimed at getting rid of these widely disliked dictators. It's, I think it's totally different and one of the reasons they haven't tried this stuff 
in the last 30 years or so is because it's totally different to attack a democratically elected leader. I mean, it's a very different political situation if you try and pull that stuff. So in many ways, I think, you know, South Korea is so much more stable now and so much more uh, capable of defending itself that I think the North is in many ways sort of uh, deterred uh, from trying that kind of stuff, which they could have conceivably thought in the 60s or 70s, we get rid of these guys. Maybe the country will turn towards us the way South Vietnam, you know, was, mm-hmm. was destabilized, mm-hmm. right? But that's, the, you know, that's, that's a little too specific. I think, you know, the larger question is, is again, this like, how do you maintain uh, a relationship that's not based purely on a military balance? As long as we're stuck with deterrence, it's not nearly as stable as if we actually repair a political relationship. Right. I mean, that's that's one of the things that like you look around the region, look around Europe. Right. It's a lot more stable now that they have a political relationship with each other than they're just deterring each other with armies and tanks. In East Asia, most of the countries in the region are trying to move that way. One of the interesting things about South China Seas is that uh, Aquino's strategy of taking China to the to the hog. That wasn't a military strategy. That was a diplomatic strategy. Getting back to North Korea. I think that's the task for the future is can we change an equilibrium that's held, barely, but it's held, deterrence for 65, 68 years. Can we change it into some kind of a political relationship where a couple nukes uh, is not a great thing, but it's better than we are today, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, I think that's a task for the leaders. Right, but, yeah. don't, but I agree. And But don't you think that if... Suppose there is sort of political normalization between the two Koreas, between the United States and North Korea, some sort of peace agreement, deterrence holds. Still, in terms of the overall level of military spending and arms racing in the region, don't you think it'll go up? I mean, Japan may be may have to coexist and live with that status quo, but I think they're going to invest a lot more in missile defense, maybe even conventional strike capabilities. I mean, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to imagine even in this scenario you you paint, right? This portrait you paint of sort of transforming what is a tense deterrence relationship into something that's more politically stable, that still countries aren't going to react. And, you know, and, if, and if Japan sure. does that, China's going to react. Well, okay, South so Koreans are going to so react. Here's, so right? here's, as long as we're speculating about yeah. the future, right? Yeah. It's easy because it hasn't happened yet. Right. But it matters because yes. how you speculate about the future yes. feeds back to like, am I on and the right the, strategy? The decisions am I on the right path today, yeah. right? Yeah. And so one of the things that I do is I show that over the last 25 years, in real terms, inflation-adjusted dollar terms, Japan's defense spending has increased 10%. So from 1990 to 2015, and actually I just updated them to 2017, it's roughly a 10% increase in real terms in Japanese defense spending. It's essentially flat, right, over a generation, over 25 years. Over that time, China's defense spending has increased 1,100%. Wow. It's wow. geometric. It's insane. Those, the, the speed with which China ca- caught up and passed Japan. Yeah. And there's been no reaction. Even peak Abe, which he is right now, is a 5% increase. If they didn't respond to that from China, there's something else going on besides, well, just wait. I mean, those lines crossed literally 10, 15 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the reason that it has been is that Japan doesn't see militarization as the key to its security. There is going to be increases. They're going to improve stuff. But Japan has not said, wow, this is a military situation in which we now need to prepare to defend ourselves the way we did in the first part of the 20th century. Mm. 
I mean, it's very hard for me to see how that's going to change now after everything else that's gone on. And now that Japan will actually hit the panic button. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Especially yeah. if, yeah. you know, there are, we could play out a scenario in which maybe China and North Korea, blah, blah, blah. But especially if the situation takes a step back on the peninsula towards a little bit more political uh, relationship, I think Japan then is actually in a better position than it is today. Yeah. I mean, but the key variable there could also be confidence in the U.S. commitment, right? And if the U.S. reaches some sort of deal in North Korea that basically delinks Japan security, they're not going to be as confident in the U.S. commitment, right? I mean, this is a podcast about Korea. Now we're talking all about Japan. We can talk about Japan. <laughs> Korea's neighbor. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is yeah. this is always a thing. This has always been the argument about Japan and cultural realism, and you know, are they really? Are, you know, is or it really are they normative? Just free writing, yeah. Right? Is it really yeah. normative constraints, or yeah. are they just really actually behaving like a country that has a patron ally? And here's what I would say about that, right? The problem with that is that the only way to really know is the counterfactual, right? If, right. They, if, if the U.S. does pull out. Right. But you can get a little bit closer because you would ask a couple of things. To me, I would ask a couple of things, right? Like, what is it that's actually worth fighting over? Because the question would be, if the U.S. wasn't a, as strong an ally, let's say, because the idea that it would become zero is, is unrealistic, right? You know, if the U.S. decides to have a political relationship with North Korea that Japan is not in favor of, what is it that Japan would think is worth fighting over that it's not willing to invest in today, but it would if the U.S. wasn't there? Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Right? Because mm -hmm. um, that's, really, that's really the fundamental part of this counterfactual. Well, they're not spending now because the U.S. is there, but boy, if the U.S. wasn't there, that's worth it to them. And I think invasion of Japan, obviously, but nobody really thinks that's happening, you know? So at the margins, better missile defense and stuff, fine, you know? Mm -hmm. Is that a trigger to a really destructive arms spiral in Asia, I'm not so convinced that that's what would go on. Mm. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, the only thing there is that, you know, I, I mean, I understand what you're saying. And I, those numbers on um, defense spending over a decade, that's very interesting. Maybe you can't get in full out, but you would get pockets of sort of arm, arm spirals because... I think the natural Japanese reaction would be more missile defense, but it would also be conventional strike capabilities. And if Japan got conventional precision strike capabilities that could go deep into North Korea, that would really upset the Chinese, right? And so that so there could, you know, you could get it wouldn't so much be a Japan DPRK arms spiral, but you could get pockets of Japan China arms racing you know, at the very high end on sort of missile defense and, you know, UAVs or other sorts of things like that. But that that's for another podcast. So, <laughs> um, so to bring it back to uh, North Korea, let me, all right, so here are a couple of things. Would you uh, establish liaison offices between the U.S. and North I'm, Korea today? I'm so unused to only me talking and you not. <laughs> it's so bizarre. Usually, I'm usually listening to you and trying to say what he said. So this is odd. I mean, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm totally for engagement. I actually think that the more that we interact with North Korea and the more that we interact with the North Korean people and the government, the more incentive they have and the more likely they are to try and moderate what they're doing and the more knowledge they have about the outside world, I think it's just great. 
Uh-huh. Right? So I would totally in favor of a liaison office. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Right? And the peace declaration. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. The peace declaration, I don't know enough. Of, I'm not enough of a legal person to know because I'm not sure what good it does if that's just a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. But an intention towards something like that, I think, mm-hmm. is is a good thing, right? Like people, people have tweeted at me uh, saying, the U.S. is guaranteed not to attack North Korea multiple times. And I say that's precisely the point. It's like, you know, I can stop smoking. I've done it, you know, I've done it five times or whatever, right? We've, we've said multiple times. We have no intention to attack North Korea. And then literally a year later, the same president says, all options are on the table if we need to. So, of course, the North Koreans don't find it convincing, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, the idea that somehow we said at one point, well, we don't want to attack you unless we have to attack you is not, is not convincing the North Koreans. So I think in many ways opening up things like this that are actually not uh, – don't affect our – security at all. I mean, a liaison office doesn't make us any more vulnerable to North Korea. I think that's a good thing. So here's, but here's the thing. So what's the difference between, (laughs) what's the difference between a, you know, a threat not to attack and a security guarantee? They look like the same thing, but they're not, right? I mean, the United States has said and continues to say, we will not attack you with nuclear or conventional weapons first, Right. That's a promise not to attack. Yeah. But the other thing, and it, it was something that I think was intimated, if not explicitly stated by Donald Trump after the Singapore summit in his wide ranging hour long press conference on no sleep is not the promise not to attack, but the promise to guarantee the security of the regime. Right. And so that's a shade further. That is another, yeah, that's yeah, another step. Yeah, and Absolutely. that raises all sorts of other, because, sure. you know, in the end, I mean, is does, like you said, deterrence holds. So does North Korea really worry yeah. that we're going to attack, or is it what they yeah. really want is that security guarantee for the regime, for the family, into the future as he tries to do this sort of reform? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that would be... You know, that's really hard to figure out. Like how, what is the regime thinking? You know, what is Kim thinking versus how do they really view it as a country in terms of maintaining a balance, right? I mean, I was less worried about a war breaking out last year just because it was pretty clear to me that deterrence did hold. Mm. But yeah, people who know much more than me were very worried about it, right? Like that we somehow would start shooting at them. And then there's no question in my mind, they would shoot back, right? So, and all it takes is one mistake where the other side thinks you shot first, they shot first. And, you know, the escalation ladder is quite, quite steep. Well, it's like, you know, the latest stuff coming out of the Woodward book that said that the president was ready to tweet out all dependents go home, right? And had to, and someone had to explain to him, I think yeah. Mattis had to explain to him that, Mr. President, if you do that, you're going to start a war, yeah. right? But the, the, this, the, the regime assurance, the security guarantee part yeah. is harder. You know, I, my sense is that, so I'm talking now, so I'm not just asking you questions. Should, good, thank you. My sense is that um, the government in South Korea, this government in South Korea, would probably be more amenable to maybe not stating it openly because it raises all sorts of human rights questions, yeah, yeah. but implicitly suggesting that they basically have their back, you know, in, yeah. in case in case stuff happens. But that I don't think will ever be enough for the North Koreans, even if the Chinese gave that sort of, you know, backdoor, we got your back sort yeah, of thing. We're not letting them come for you. Yeah. Still, yeah. unless they hear from the Americans, they're never going to feel comfortable. Yeah. And 
you know, on the one hand, I think that if there's any administration in the history of the United States that might do something like that, it would be this administration. On the other hand, even if they did do that, as soon as the next administration rolled around, the North Koreans would be like, yeah, it's not credible. This is the thing, right? It is incredible for them to say we will denuclearize forever. There's no way that we can promise forever to never attack them and to guarantee their survival. That's just, again, that's just not, that's not possible, right? I mean, it's really interesting if you think about it like that. These can all be steps, but they're steps towards a much deeper, like I said, I've, you know, this is very vague, right? But it's some kind of a political relationship where you have some kind of an, uh, an equilibrium, you know? I mean, one thing, one thing that I find interesting about Taiwan, China is no matter what we think of where it is today, it is so much more stable than it was in the mid-90s when there was, you know, missiles going overhead and aircraft carriers, right? It seems that both sides have said, we'll put off this ultimate decision on sovereignty. You can sort of exist as a sort of country and we can trade and go back all the time. And as long as you don't do that, and as long as we don't do this, we can get along. Uh, And there's pushing and pulling and bullying, but essentially it's far less dangerous than it was 20 years ago, at least, right? Uh, and if North Korea, you know, I'm I'm much more about taking a step in the right direction than about some kind of final, mm-hmm. final endpoint because those are so far away, you know. Like, um, but I think that we're in a way we're moving in the right direction. So I know that you also hate this, and I hate it too. But you know, to use the example of Germany. Right, because we always use the example of Germany when we talk about Korea. I mean, there is. I mean, it is. It is decades down the road, but it's sort of getting, almost getting to where East and West Germany were, you know, a long time ago. Yeah. Right, in terms of at least a level of exchange, yeah. a level of communication that just, you know, Korea is unique in that sense. There's never been that level yeah. of exchange or, or, or discussion. So there is some relevance to the German example. As Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's true. Although I, yeah. there are so many other examples. But th- yeah. that one is a good one, especially when you think, like, there's no interaction, uh, official legal action, interaction between the people. Yeah. Right? You can do it sort of illegally if you smuggle in cell phones and blah, blah. You can, people can call their relatives in North Korea. But there's, it's not really allowed for us just to call North Korea and say, yeah. you know— how are you doing, uncle, right? Yeah. Even movement in that direction where there's a little more interaction, um, yeah, is, a, is I think it's a step in the right direction. Yeah. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is the impossible state.